This is the She Dares to Travel podcast, and I am your host, Raquela Pollock. After spending a decade managing the number one travel agency in Canada, I am now here to connect you to women that are taking the travel industry by storm, as well as female business professionals that also have a passion for travel, just like me. We are here to inspire, uplift, and motivate you to not only follow, but plan out your dreams, no matter where in the world they may be. And of course, this wouldn't be possible without our sponsor, Staples Studio, where I am currently recording from. Check them out on their website, studio.staples.ca. It truly is a new approach to co-working with community at its heart. There's access to hot desks, meeting and event spaces all across North America. So thank you, Staples Studio, for connecting us and sponsoring this podcast. And thank you for listening. Enjoy, be sure to subscribe and follow along. Hello, all you daredevils out there. It's Raquela. I'm here yet again with another episode. And I am back, of course, to chat about travel. And these episodes really are just to keep your travel inspiration alive. As much as it is something for you, it really is for something uh, for me too. I truly miss travel. And I just hope that in today's episode, we can transport you all the way over to Asia. The last few episodes, we were in France. We spoke to someone in Morocco. And today, we're going to be talking all about Asia and a beautiful part of Asia Asia as well. Because today I am joined with Jessica Yu. She's the director and founder of Sticky Rice Travels. She is joining us all the way from Sabah, Malaysia. And she's created a tour company that can have you experiencing the most intimate parts of Borneo, Malaysia. And Borneo is this rugged, giant island. I think it's like the third largest island in the world. I'll have to triple check on that. It's in the Southeast Asia's Malay Archipelago. And it's known for its stunning beaches. It's got this beautiful rainforest and it's home to some really wonderful wildlife as well. So Jessica has created this company and it showcases this beautiful part of the world, but she's also ensuring that it's preserved and taken care of while people visit. So thank you so much, Jessica, for chatting with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me um, to the podcast, actually. We are happy to chat with you. Now, right now, it's currently, what time is it? It's 5.45 p.m. over here in Western Canada, and it's about, I guess it's 9.45 a.m. there. Is that right? You're 16 hours ahead? Yep. In Malaysia? That's I right. <laughs> you are. So technically, you're in the future. <laughs> so how's it going? I over... am in the future. <laughs> is tomorrow going to be a good day? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Tomorrow is a good day, and I'm sitting here looking out at the blue skies, you know, looking at the water, and um, nice. so I'm really looking forward to being out. What's one of the first things you're going to do once you're you're outside? I'm going to take my paddle board out, I think, tomorrow morning. Oh, I <laughs> love it. And go for a paddle out at sea. I love it. So right now you're in Sabah, Malaysia. And just explain a little bit more to us, whereabouts is that in Malaysia or a relation uh, to other countries in Sabah? So, um, yeah, everybody's out of Southeast Asia. And I think with Sabah, or we're part of Malaysia. But Malaysia is made up of two parts. You have the peninsula, which is the bit that gets down from the mainland of Thailand and Vietnam, you know. Yeah. And then there's the, um, uh, there's the South China Sea. And you have to get on a plane for about two and a half hours from the capital of Malaysia, which is Kuala Lumpur, to get to where I am, uh, which is the Malaysian part of Borneo. And Borneo, as you said before, is the third largest 
island in the world. Well, that's and, true. Okay, good. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were right. Good. And, and um, yeah, with this uh, sometimes less known just because I think as a destination, it is a bit more, it can be a bit more niche, you know, in the sense that um, I think uh, when you think about, uh, when you think about Southeast Asia, people don't immediately think about Malaysian Borneo as their first destination, you know, but uh, the focus here is mostly, you know, rainforest, obviously a big part of the island of Borneo is still covered in rainforest, especially where I am at in Sabah, Mm -hmm. the northern part of Borneo, and that's a big draw. And then, of course, we are um, right at where like the Coral Triangle region is, where we have the richest marine biodiversity in the world also. Oh, it just sounds so beautiful. And I've only, <laughs> when I was working as a travel agent, I only had a handful of people ask to go to, to go to Borneo. And I think two of them have family that were there and one person actually had heard of it and wanted to go on a tour. So it's, you're right. It's a very remote region that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, I think in the past five, five years or so, I think there's more awareness, you know, with people wanting to visit places that, aren't always going to stay the same, you know, with modernization and that sort of stuff. And I think with uh, tourism, it has done uh, quite a fantastic job in preserving a lot of the more delicate natural environment. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's been an up-and-coming destination for some time, but still not quite um, uh, in that mass uh, sort of way, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Well, hopefully once things open up, a lot of people will hear more about it, which is really exciting because it is a beautiful place. Now, have you always been living in Malaysia? Uh, I was born in Sabah, but when I was six, I actually, my mom moved to Kuala Lumpur. So I grew up in the big city (laughs) and and knew very, very little about uh, Malaysian Borneo, actually. So what's, uh, and I, I spent most of my childhood and, um, you know, like, like adult years away from uh, Borneo until I think I only, I only returned in 2010, you know, 2010 okay. and, you know, coming back, discovering my roots and mm-hmm. learning about the rainforest and what a special place it is. So I've always kind of taken it for granted that I'm from Malaysian Borneo until I started living here Um, you know just growing up in the big city I didn't have a lot of exposure to outdoors you know Kuala Lumpur is you know covered in buildings and um, you know you could get away into nature but it's a little bit challenging sometimes with work and traffic and that sort of stuff you know Um, but yeah and then post that I've also lived in several other countries also Okay. I went to school in Australia and worked a little bit in the U.S. and um, started working in tourism in Vietnam, actually. That's where my whole travel thing started. Yeah. Wow. So you've been all over the place. So you said you went to, where was it, university in Australia? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what were you taking when you were there? So, you know, with a lot of, um, I think, like middle-class Asian parents, right? So my dad um, has a construction company. So there's always a push, you know, if you speak to Asian kids, you know, they're always talking about, oh, you know, my parents wanted me to do this, like whether it's business or accounting or that sort of stuff. And he was really kind of nudging me towards doing architecture. And I um, 
actually did that for a bit. Um, like my foundation year, I did um, like an interior uh, architecture kind of course. But then very quickly decided that, oh, you know, maybe uh, it's not really what I wanted to do. And I kind of switched to communication. And of course, then my mom was, you know, going off about, oh, you know, are you sure you're going to be able to make money? Are you, you know, are you going to be able to survive? You know, what do you Concerned do in parents. communication? Uh-huh. You know, you, what do you mean this is a career path, you know? Um, so travel hasn't always been something that I've pursued in that sense. But yeah. I remember growing up, uh, geography has always been my favorite subject. And I'm, you know, I've always been intrigued by, um, like, the world map. You know, I sit there, look at all these places and, you know, dream about going somewhere where the culture is entirely different and mm-hmm. meeting people that are, you know, very different from the people that you basically yeah, grew up with and the different food and that sort of stuff. So I've always been very, very curious about um, different things like that. Wow. And with being that you were... Uh, from Malaysia originally, and then going to Australia, mm-hmm. like how many languages can you speak? That's the thing. I think that's the thing with Malaysians, right? I, you know, the first time I lived abroad, I, I didn't realize I'd meet people, and I'd say, oh yeah, you know, like I, I think we take it for granted in Malaysia that we speak several languages mm-hmm. because of the, you know, like the multicultural. Like we've got, um, you know, in school you learn Malay and English. Mm-hmm. So most people automatically already speak two languages. And then based on your um, ethnic background, you know, if you're of Chinese descent or whatever, you may speak one or two or three different Chinese dialects, wow. you know. So um, <laughs> when I was first living in Australia, I think people said, oh, what do you mean you speak so many languages? But to a lot of Malaysians, it's like, oh, you know, that's this. What we do on a day-to-day basis, you know, because we go to a store and we switch from Malay to English to Chinese and yeah, and then so I think also um, because my mom had a bit of a, I think talent for learning different languages, and I think I I got that from her. And before I went to live in uh, Vietnam, I actually took some Vietnamese lessons as well. Okay. So I speak a bit of basic. Vietnamese too. Wow. And I guess once you have a foundation (laughs) of one of the languages, it's a little bit easier. Like, are they quite similar? Uh, I know English, obviously, Malay are very different, but with Vietnam, yeah. Vietnamese? Yeah, because, you know, some Asian languages are tonal, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's, um, that's hard for a lot of people if uh, you didn't grow up having exposure to them. Mm-hmm. So for me, I didn't actually receive any formal um, education in Chinese, like language oh. classes or anything like that. It's just from growing up. And, you know, being exposed to it from a very young age to Mandarin, to Cantonese, to Hakka. And, uh, you know, I I just figured out that I understood these languages, you know, so I don't read yeah. and write. Um, okay. And then converse. because Chinese is, yeah, Chinese is tonal, right? So mm-hmm. when I crossed over to uh, Vietnamese, I figured that, you know, it's also tonal. So um, that made it easier to learn that. Definitely. It's very similar. Well, a little bit similar. I won't say exactly uh, the same, 
but growing up, I grew up in an Italian household and I only mm. have learned English, but my, my Nona, yeah. she lived with us from a very young age when I was five and my, you know, my parents would always talk in Italian. I was here and they were always on the phone with people in Italy. Yeah. And, uh, my husband and I, a few years ago, like I, I know I can't speak it, but when we went to Italy, mm-hmm. I could understand what yeah. people were saying. It was the strangest thing. <laughs> and my husband's like, I didn't realize you understood it so well. I was like, I didn't really under- realize either. <laughs> like it was so weird. But to talk it, it's very yeah, that hard. Yeah, so, so strange. Mm-hmm, it is. Right. But so I, I, um, are you, um, have you, you know, do you have any plans of like pursuing it further? So I've, I have be like, more fluent in after it or? that, I did a little bit of training or a little bit of studies, I guess, on it. And I, you know, I have the Rosetta Stone and my mom actually um, started doing the Duolingo to get more fluent because she's Swedish. So she just learned with right. my family, with my dad being Italian. But um, yeah. I, I do want to, and it's just a matter of sitting down to do it. And I actually said last year because of COVID, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then I still haven't. But, you know, I'll put it on the list. Oh, it no. will happen. Yeah. <laughs> it will. But it's just being around That's it all the, the same time. for me. Same thing. <laughs> it's hard. You got to have the discipline. And I've always mm-hmm. wanted to learn Spanish. So I listen oh. to a lot of Spanish songs. And I've actually attempted it before, but because I live in an area where there's not really a whole lot of opportunity to practice, right? So I think that's a big factor as well. You can't because just with Vietnamese, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not like you can just you know incorporate into your daily life without kind of saying to yourself, "Hey, look, you know, you're gonna sit down and put in the time." Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we all get <laughs> in. <laughs> like with Vietnamese, I okay, I took some lessons, and yeah. then I said, "Okay, you know what, I've." plans on going to Vietnam I don't know if I'm going to live there or not but you know it'd be nice to know a little bit before I go but then I ended up living there for two years and you're in the country so you have like every day you're being confronted with look this is your opportunity are you gonna just like roll it off your tongue and make the mistakes or whatever and then learn that way (laughs) that is the best way to learn definitely to dive into it it really is well Mm -hmm. with you starting uh, sticky rice travels has tourism always been something that you've wanted to get into and always been passionate about yeah, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, when I was a kid, you know, when you were a kid in school, you get, I don't know if you get asked, like, what do you what do you want to be when you grow up? Yes, for sure. <laughs> so, my, <laughs> I remember my mom, she had a, she had a good friend who's a, like a, like a guy, right? Okay. And I remember saying to my mom, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a tourist guide. And, you know, she would say, no, you don't want to do that you'll have to deal with so many different types of people it's such a difficult job and but internally I've always I've always said to myself you know I I'm really interested in tourism and I want to do something in it but um there was just not that kind of if I had said something like oh I want to do a I want to study business. Mm-hmm. There'd be a big push, you know. Yeah, I but I kind of kept it in the background. Yeah. So um, after I finished my studies, I actually was working in corporate. Uh, I was organizing um, like corporate conferences. That was the that was my job yeah. before getting into travel. So I kind of did that for a couple of years, and uh, you know, and I was in my early twenties, and you know, I had all these thoughts about, oh, is this all it's gonna be you know mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> um but then uh, I think at some point I sort of said look you 
going to take the risk and try it out. I think there's also a catalyst. I There was a, a relationship that ended that kind of prompted me to go to Vietnam, actually. So it was there that, you know, I, I thought about, okay, you know, maybe I want to live here, but I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know anyone in Vietnam. Wow. And it seemed at the time the easiest uh, job to try to get there was in um, hospitality and tourism. So, um, so I tried that. And it was challenging. It took me a couple of months before um, meeting um, my bosses at the time. So mm-hmm. there were these two American... <laughs> two American boys who started a rock climbing company in Halong Bay. And um, rock climbing was very, very new in Vietnam. Nobody had any idea what it was, you know. And yeah, and they were living in Halong Bay on an island called Kat Ba. And um, it's quite remote in a sense that I think at the time it had maybe 20,000 people. And the whole island is very lush. Uh, a big part of it uh, is a um, national park and there's a lot of limestone cars in the area um, oh. so they were looking for uh, people that were willing to live on the island and you know I oh. I was you know I was already a climber then and I said yeah I, I want a job <laughs> <laughs> and that's how my career in tourism actually um, started yeah, as a rock climbing and kayaking guide in Halong Bay. That is yeah. Nice. I'm googling and it actually were, right now. Katba Katba Island, right? C A T B A. Beautiful. That it is gorgeous. What a great idea <laughs> to start a rock climbing uh, business on the island. How how long were you there yeah. for? Uh, uh, I was in Vietnam <clears throat> for a total of two years. And uh, one year I was on Kappa. So I really, I mean, that was kind of like a pivotal point Mm -hmm. in my life, really, because um, first of all, it was a really nice, uh, small uh, group of people, you know, uh, similar minded. And I really looked up to Eric and Onslow. So um, they were the ones who started the company and it was called uh, Slow Pony Adventures then. But, you know, I thought it was really brave of them to kind of pursue their dreams and, you know, start a travel company in in a remote area, you know, in an entirely different country in Vietnam. And Vietnam was just opening up then, you know. Mm. Um, So for the first time in my life, I realized that, oh, actually, I am able to do something and get paid for it and enjoy it every day. <laughs> and, you know, I was really passionate about it too, because I think growing up, that was never, I don't know, it was never something that I thought was possible. I thought a job is a job. You know, you do something, you get yeah. paid for it. It doesn't really matter whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I imagine waking up every day to take people rock climbing. I would go on a boat and, you know, um, you go through these like limestone cars formation on the boat to get to the beach and you set up uh, like the top rope for people to climb and sometimes yeah. I take people kayaking and uh, it was absolutely amazing. It just goes to show sometimes that seeing someone else do it and sometimes sometimes you just don't know how inspiring you are but other people see what you're doing and you think huh 
I never thought that was possible, but maybe I could do it too. And it sounds like you had that yeah. moment with, with these guys because it's such a great idea. And it's, it is true for many of us. And especially here in North America, it's like you go to work, you collect your paycheck, you go home. And then there's that quote, yeah. you know, you, you never work a day in your life if you love what you're doing. But for a lot of us, it's, you kind of forget. Sometimes you forget. Yeah. How and I, that I don't is. think that, that, yeah, I don't think that that's just an American now. I think it's everywhere. everywhere. Even yeah. with, yeah, even with, um, you know, like developing countries and everything. Thing, you know, if yeah. people kind of like go into like a nine to five kind of existence, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, you just get caught up in all of that. So definitely, you do. Yeah. So then, how did the vision for Sticky Rice Travel start after after this? So after spending two years in Vietnam, at some point, um, my mom moved back to Sabah from Kuala Lumpur, mm-hmm. and you know, she was always. Um, you know, I attribute a lot of um, my traits to her, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. sense that she's always said, oh, you know, you you have to be independent and, you know, you work for what you want and that sort of thing. Yet at the same time, she was always saying like, okay, what are you doing with your life right now? Okay, you know, is it a phase that you're going through, you know, you're working in tourism, is that a real job? <laughs> but then um, when she moved back, she sort of said to me, and I was having a bit of a, like a work visa issue in Vietnam as well at the time. So she said to me, I'm moving back to Sabah. And, you know, if you like tourism and outdoors, Saba is a wonderful place for it. So I kind of considered it and, you know, you know, took her up on it and came back. Came back at the age of, how old was I? I think I was maybe 29 at the time. Yeah. You know, returning to a place that's really entirely different, even though I'm Sabahan, that's what we call ourselves, Sabahan. you know, people from Sabah. Okay. But coming back here, it was uh, an entirely new place place or environment or like subculture you know um because the the dialect the malay is also different from peninsula where i grew up and you know uh so it was like coming to a new place and uh, i did find out that yeah there's amazing outdoors you know uh there's diving there's hiking there's national parks but um in terms of job opportunities in tourism because tourism hasn't been around that long uh, here. Okay. So it, it was really at its kind of like infancy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the activities of programs, uh, travel programs, I mean, were more geared towards, uh, like very engineered towards more math tourism kind of thing. Oh, you know? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, coming back, I sort of, looked around and, you know, having the exposure that I had in Vietnam and prior to that, I had traveled to different places as well, mm-hmm. um, like in the U.S. and Europe and Southeast Asia, right? Yeah. Uh, I definitely thought that something was missing. Um, you know, there's like a, a gap, a gap there that someone's not doing or not pursuing, right? Mm-hmm. And after about a year being here, I met uh, Charlie, who's my business partner, mm-hmm. And he, he's American, and he had been living in Sabah for <clears throat> several years at the time. Okay. And he was uh, guiding, like, school expeditions into the interior of Borneo um, for, I think, high school kids as well as university students. And he was also at the point where he was trying to um, find something more concrete in terms of staying put in Borneo. 
So he kind of said, you know, maybe we should start a travel company. At the time, there was not really any huge vision of all the responsible tourism or anything like that. But merely to say, oh, you know, everybody's doing the same thing. There's something that people are not doing. And for offering experiences that are more authentic and less engineered or that sort of stuff. And it happened so organically. And even I got a bit of goosebumps when you said it was it was kind of your mom's idea to come back to Malaysia and be like or or to Borneo Malaysia and say like, hmm, this is something you could do tourism here, especially if she's been pushing you to go into something completely different. (laughs) So good on your mom for seeing that as well. Right. And I'm sure she wanted you close by because, you know, how parents do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 2021 and, you know, I'm still here and I never... I never would have thought because when I when I had to leave Vietnam, I was actually really brokenhearted uh, <laughs> because yeah. I I really liked it and I learned a lot, not just in tourism, but also as a person, you know, it was sort of like a coming of age kind of thing yeah. because I felt that um, I was really testing the waters as in I am alone and am I going to make it on my own without connections or anything like that? Because if you're from somewhere, I always think that there's always something that you can fall back on. You know the culture, maybe you have some sort of connections, or you know how things work, right? Yeah. But being in Vietnam, not really not really having any of that, um, I kind of discovered a lot about myself, like mm-hmm. how I would, uh, how I am under a certain pressure, or how I am in new environment, challenges and everything. How do I deal with all of that? So it was a lot of growing up. Um, and learning about myself at my own terms kind of thing. And uh, at the end of like the two-year period, I was really smitten with the country. I had a lot of respect for its people because when I first went there, I thought about Vietnam as, oh, it's a beautiful country. And then living there, learning the language and, you know, learning the culture, learning the history. Vietnam has had such a a complex history and, you know, really getting into that, learning the psyche of the people, making friends and seeing the changes from the looking at the older generations to the new generations because Vietnam is such a young country, right? Mm -hmm. And just feeling the energy and that sort of thing. And I, I just developed a whole lot of, um, respect and um, for the Vietnamese people and the country and really enjoying kind of being a part of that. So when I had to leave, I, I said to myself, oh, you know, I'll just go and try it out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm from there. I have to stay and live there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had that internal voice. <laughs> I said, you know, but what do I have to lose? You can go. I gave myself two years. Um, and actually after the first year, I actually left the job that I had here to go back to Vietnam. But when I went back there, I realized that, you know, I'm always going to have issues with my work permit because uh, I was working for all these, like, travel companies that were small and they didn't have the quotas for foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, well, if if you've only spent a year in Sabah and what you did at the time was, cut yourself off uh, onto an island because I was living on a remote island again, managing a small lodge. And yeah. so I didn't really make any friends. Um, I said, better give it another year. Yeah. So I came back and gave it another year. And then, and then Charlie and I met and we put our heads together. And, and that's how we kind of, Meant to be. you know, and like you said, we, we grew mm-hmm. the travel company organically. 
we really didn't because the both of us it it's not like we went to business school or anything like that right yeah. and in fact i think for both of us we were trying to go as far as we could from corporate mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had all these ideas about like look you know we wanted to be this way and but then it just kind of happened i mean from 2012 to um 2020 last year uh, we grew from a two-person team to like a 45-person team and you know it was a lot of learning along the way Mm -hmm. I learned so much I gave so much (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) wow it's just so incredible how things can grow like that and just when it's when it's meant to be and there's a passion behind it and you know that it's the right move you it's very true you can just start all you got to do is start and then will slowly come and you'll learn from your mistakes you'll learn from each other and as long as you're still wanting to do it it's still possible it's just a matter of starting really so very very cool story I think also I mean to be honest with you I was surprised with myself because I always I don't know. I seem to always move around, you know, it's kind of like what I give to every place. And, but then I was shocked at, um, I guess I just stumbled upon something that I really believed in because, you know, like you asked me, what was the vision originally? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then over the years, it kind of grew, you know, it became, cause we saw, um, you know, the people that, um, came to be a part of the team, we kind of saw them grow as well. And then we thought, wow, you know, actually, we are building and we have the resources to actually impact people's lives, you know, to see, you know, like a guide who's starting off as a junior guy. And then uh, at the end of like a couple of years, you see them guiding for these big brands, you know, and, you know, they've built so much self-confidence and like expertise. And then it's really and you can kind of see the passion that they've developed for the for the job as well, mm-hmm. and that kind of really for a bigger vision, um, and that's how the whole oh you know actually we can contribute a lot more in terms of like um, the local community getting um, certain communities involved in tourism mm-hmm. if they're interested yeah. in areas where we take people to, and then we can also play a big role in supporting conservation because. Like I said, um, you know, uh, with the rainforest and that sort of thing, you know, we're talking about delicate environment, right? Yes. And, you know, there's also all these amazing individuals that have started this small nonprofit or bigger nonprofit or whatever that are really pushing for conservation of mm-hmm. the rainforest and certain species. Yeah. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, you know, this is the roadmap. You know, we can actually a lot, do a lot more than just run travel programs. Exactly. So it kind of became that way. And it's so neat because there, well, like, do you know, I don't even know, are there many other um, tour companies that go through Borneo? I think there's some of the larger companies like G Adventures, I think does. Uh, other than yeah, that, I don't know. Actually, Not many. Uh, really, in the past five years, uh, Borneo uh, has kind of like um, picked up as a destination in the U.S., Canada, and, you know, I think for Europe, yeah. it's, have always had the exposure but all of the big companies like Nat Geo and yeah. you know uh wellness travel and uh, natural habitat and that sort of stuff they, they they do have programs for Borneo now I think the main draw is really rainforest and orangutan you know mm-hmm. just because conservation is a big thing now and you know uh, there are more and more people that are wanting to go to places that you know may not be the same 
exactly. um, in, I don't know, five years or 10 years or 15 years, you know. And I think it's so important that if you're if you're choosing to go to a place like this to make sure you're picking a company that is sustainable and helping and that the money is going to those local communities, because that's important. Um, that's that's something that they need. Right. I think that, you know, there's a lot of players in Borneo and I think that it's kind of going that way. And, you know, that and that sort of division that uh, CQS Travel has, because, mm-hmm. you know, I think we want to infect as many players as possible yeah. with the idea that, you know, you can be more than just uh, a travel company that takes people to go see places, you know. Exactly. You can do so much more. You can create a lot of awareness and, mm-hmm. you know, you can also look at your operations and say, you know, because... We're promoting delicate environment. And really, yeah. without these environment and habitat, um, there's no tourism to begin with, really. Exactly. <laughs> so, and you exactly. know, it is in everybody's best interest to say, look, why don't we do this? And mm-hmm. there can never be enough of that. I think that that takes time. You it know, does. I think in a lot of places, as tourism starts, it's all about um, like math and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, big groups and that sort of thing. You don't think too much about the impact. Um, it's all about the number, you know, the profitability and that sort of thing. But exactly, uh, yeah. I think slowly but surely it's going to go there, you know, with the demand as well from travelers. So, 100%. Hmm. And I think especially after the year we have just had with, with the lack of travel, of course, but also understanding our impact on the environment, some these type of trips and traveling with a purpose, I think is something that people will have more forefront in their mind than they ever have had before. Instead of just going somewhere yeah. just to go you know, and, and do whatever. It's it's more travel with a purpose. And I think that's something that will be very fulfilling moving forward. So it's wonderful you guys have, have that thought and focus on Borneo, right, as it slowly starts yeah. to open, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if anything with the pandemic, you know, because, you know, and I go to all these travel conferences and we always talk about impact, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, instead of just looking at um, arrival numbers, you should also look at other things like uh, spending and that sort of stuff because, yeah. you know, you can have, say, for example, you can have 20,000 people and a certain revenue, but maybe you can have 5,000 people and the same amount of revenue, that sort of stuff, right? Exactly. But I think it always takes time, and yeah. time is not something that the environment always will have, you know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah. with a pandemic, with the pandemic, I think, it, you know, of course, there's a lot of downside, but there's some ups in terms of tourism. I mm-hmm. think we're being forced to, oh, okay, you know, people that would go on um, like a big uh, group kind of trips may not go on those anymore. So, yes. you yes. know, it automatically yes, pushes yes, for yes, smaller yes. group travel, mm-hmm. at least for, you know, a few years anyway, you know, and then things have a way to kind of like, you know, go back go to back, where it was. But I'm hoping that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm hoping that it will really drive something. I have not thought about that <clears throat> before, but that is so bang on because there's tours. I've even been on a tour of 50 people and and it's something that yeah. is not going to be as desirable <laughs> as those much smaller intimate ones. And I we've done the smaller intimate tours and you get so much more out of them. You really, really do. And so, oh, so speaking Absolutely. of the, the tours then, so walk us through like what is on one of your most popular tours through Borneo, what are some of the places they'd go and the things they would see or that I would see if I went on a on one of the trips? 
So for Sticky Rice Travel, because we specialize in um, nature and wildlife, mm-hmm. um, my favorite destination, for example, in Sabah is the East Coast. Okay. Because that's where all the, you know, like the parks are, that's all the mammals are, the wildlife and everything else in between, you know. Um, like Kota Kinabalu, uh, where I live, is the gateway city. So prior to the pandemic, you have flights from all over mainland Asia, like Korea, China, um, Hong Kong, and that sort of thing. But uh, the East Coast is where um, you see the most, um, in terms of what uh, Malaysian Borneo has to offer. Okay. So, and it's a good mix of activities as well. Like the Kinabatangan River um, is where you go on river cruises. So, mm-hmm. I always say it's really good for urban people that, uh, you know, like they don't like creepy crawlies <laughs> <laughs> because all you got to do is That's sit true. on a boat, you know, you go out really early morning and it's nice and oh. it's foggy and misty. It's pretty magical, you know, before the sun even comes up what, and, and what, all the wildlife is just waking up. Yeah. What, so I was just going to ask, what was the river name again? Uh, Chinabatanian River. It's a mouthful. Chinabatanian. <laughs> I know. Okay. Chinabatanian. Okay. I'm going to look that up because I haven't actually heard of that. Yeah. So, okay. So, Misty Rivers, you can see here the animals. What type of animals are, are do you see in here? Uh, you see, you know, several species of hornbills, um, many different types of birds. You see the proboscis monkey, which is, you know, I think the, oh. the hallmark of Malaysian Borneo, the monkey with the big nose, the oh, floppy okay. nose. <laughs> um, you know, if you're lucky, you see orangutans as well, um, gibbons, crocodiles, uh, basically everything there is wow. to see. You have a good chance of seeing on the river. So you go out in the morning for a river cruise for about an hour and a half, two hours or so, come back, have breakfast, you know, in a natural, like, forest setting. Um, you can read a book outside your balcony or, you know, go for walks and, you know, watch birds and that sort of thing. And then in the evening, uh, you go out again for an afternoon river cruise. Oh. And then nighttime, you go out on a river cruise again for uh, nocturnal wildlife. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's very easy. It's very comfortable. You know, so yeah, the Kinabatangan is a really pleasant place to be, and you know, it's great for everyone from families with kids to couples. You know, because mm-hmm. I think when a lot of people think about uh, Borneo, uh, sometimes people think about having to rough it out. You know, but it's quite the contrary actually today, especially with Sabah. Yeah. Um, so Kinabatangan, you fly for about fifty minutes from Kota Kinabalu, the city, and you're there. Mm-hmm. And you check into a nice lodge, and some lodges have got fans, some air conditioning, and it's a nice setting. And, yeah, oh. it's, it's easy and beautiful. That sounds like exactly my kind of holiday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> easy and beautiful. That's what I love. I mean, I'm all for an adventure, but it's so nice to have. There's something to be said sometimes about having just a really comfortable place to go back to. You know, after a day of an adve- yeah. adventuring. Yeah, definitely. Especially when it comes to the jungle, you know, because yeah. uh, where we're at, it's always, always hot and humid. Mm-hmm. So it can be challenging for people that are not used, not used to the humidity. Yeah. And, you know, what more being in the jungle and everything. So there's something for everybody here. Like I said, Kinabatangan is really pleasant. And I, whenever I'm crafting a trip, um, I like to start people off here because, you know, it's an easy 
gentle ease into the forest. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously you do mostly just cruising, so sitting down. And when you go on to the next destination, one of my favorite places mm-hmm. in Sabah is Danum Valley. Okay. And this is, um, you know, old growth primary rainforest. So you're talking about towering giant trees, you know. Wow. And um, absolutely, like, lovely just to be in that setting. Um, but, you know, in Denham Valley, for example, you get to do a mix of activities. So you go on hikes early morning. You can go on short hikes or long hikes. You can swim in the river, you know, mm-hmm. or you can go on like a safari drive also. So, you know, it's it's good that there's a mix of activities that you can do because, um, uh, you know, otherwise it gets a bit monotonous, right? If you're just exactly. sitting on a safari jeep for like, 10 days or you know something like that your butt would so hurt after that, that usually <laughs> safari for that long yeah. oh my god <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean I I absolutely love Africa and I yeah. know that you can do walking safaris as well but sometimes for me like in India or in Africa where you have to be because there's predators you know there's lions and mm-hmm. you can't just like go walking around right whereas in Borneo you can do that because there's nothing that will come and jump on you, you know? <laughs> oh, so beautiful. So, yeah. <laughs> That's neat. Mm. So then with this type of tour, with any food that you can get or um, food that's included, what are there any local delicacies or type of food in Borneo that's really popular that people could expect? So with a lot of the lodges in, um, in the park or in, like, the forest, the food is... Uh, you know, pretty, um, like, staple. You have your rice, noodles, and vegetable, and meat dishes, and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, some lodges have more elaborate food than others. Yeah. But uh, in terms of variety of food, it's really, um, like, in the city. Then you have okay. all the different hawker stalls and that sort of oh, stuff. So but, uh, yeah, because a lot of the lodges are quite remote, and, you know, a lot of the food gets taken in from, like, the New York City, right? So, mm-hmm. Uh, I always say, you know, you have a staple and that's, that's good and they can cater to all the different dietary needs and that sort of stuff. Nice. But yeah, definitely where I live in the city, you can get a whole range of um, like noodles, curry laksa, which is like a oh, coconutty, um, uh, spicy kind of noodle dish with like different roast uh, pork or meat, that sort of stuff. Ooh, that sounds delicious. I love curry. So good. So I do have to ask, um, when it comes to Sticky Race tour or travels and Borneo right now, are there other ways that we can continue to support you guys? Because I know tourism, of course, is down after the last year. Or any suggestions that you have for us when we are looking for future tours? Yeah. You know, unfortunately for us, we we consider it... Um, Pivoting, you know, all those keywords, right? But mm-hmm. I think it's challenging and yeah. it has been challenging. And I think what we've done is we've stayed um, we've stayed active in our yeah. social media just because we want people to know that we're here. We're just uh, hibernating because, you know, that's, that's all we can do right now, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, we're definitely excited about when borders are going to start uh, opening again. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I think um, everybody on the team feels a bit restless. Like the guys are really missing 
um, their jobs. I mean, they absolutely love what they do. It's so amazing. And I have so much respect for them because yeah. you can see it, you know, and imagine not being able to, you know, not being able to do their job, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we still active on our social media. So we've kept Good. in touch with our fans and our followers and that sort of thing. What we started doing recently is that um, we... Because Charlie produced the book because he's, um, he's an avid nature photography, photographer. Okay. So he produced a book called uh, Trails uh, to Tales, Borneo Trails to Tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've been promoting that online. Um, and, you know, that's available for shipping everywhere. Nice. Whereabouts uh, but other you, than that. Where can you get the book? Uh, you can reach out to us on our social media or on our website. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so that, and then we'll get back to you, and we'll advise you on the shipping charges and stuff. And that has been challenging as well, because, you know, just shipping today with the pandemic, right? But exactly. uh, we started, we started, I think in the past month, I think we started doing that, and it's possible. Nice. So that's such a great yeah, idea. Yeah, and mm, it's a beautiful, like, coffee table book, and all of the um, all of the sales will go to it, the community project that we're engaged in, and Definitely. Well, I'll make sure to include um, a link with the podcast as well, just so people will be able to find it. And I'll definitely check it out. Beautiful. Yeah. That's a great idea. And then whereabouts can everyone find you guys on social media? What's your social media um, handles or website? And where can everyone find you? So website is uh, stickywisetravel.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, Instagram is uh, stickywisetravel. And I think we're mostly active on, we're on Facebook as well. Same handle. Awesome. And, um, yeah, we just uh, put out, you know, uh, whatever we get up to on there. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And that's something that we can continue to follow along with. And, I mean, we just really appreciate your insight. I appreciate your insight into this area that only so many people get to really experience. There's many probably haven't even heard about. I know it's something that I have only heard about a handful of years ago as well. And just your passion for the area and knowledge is definitely something that shines through. And it's incredible what you guys are doing for the local communities and just your story of how you got there. So it's something to be very proud of. So I really, really appreciate you chatting with us today. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Like I said, you know, it's lovely to be connecting with um, uh, other travel um, professionals out there because I think with the pandemic, it's uh, really important to be you know, to try to stay connected. <laughs> it is. It's true. And it's it's continuing the inspiration and the stories and whatever we can share. And, and exactly that. Stay connected because it's going to come back. We all know it. It just we don't know when. But it will happen. And I know yeah. once it's up and running, everyone's going to be craving that adventure. And Borneo is high on my bucket list. And I do know, for those of you who have listened to other episodes, I say that pretty much every episode about somewhere I haven't been. <laughs> but it's actually because my list is so long after this past. Last year, and I mean, let's face it, just in general, it's a long list. But Borneo is definitely somewhere to travel. Put it on your list. Do some research about it. Look at Mount Kinabalu. Check out the river. What was that river name again? Kinabatanian River. Batanian <laughs> River. Yes. Check it out. Um, and Dunum, or no, Danum Valley, D-A-N-U-M. Danum Valley. Danum yeah. Valley in Borneo. Absolutely gorgeous. And reach out to Jessica or Sticky Race Travels if you are interested or just planning anything in the future. Just want to get excited about Borneo. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe, download a few more, and leave a review. I really would love to hear from you, what you enjoyed, and what your key takeaways were. And of course, please let me know if there's any aspect of the travel industry you want me to talk about next. You can also search for the hashtag SheDaresToTravelPodcast on Instagram and comment on the episode's post with your questions. I'd love to answer them all for you guys. I hope you enjoy your day. Stay so well. And until next time, fly straight.